0: Warning, this podcast contains graphic and triggering language and content that may upset and disturb some listeners. Please seek professional help if needed. Welcome to What's Your 20. I'm your host, Emily Zufeldt. The concept behind What's Your 20 is a mental health check-in. This isn't just for first responders and armed forces. It's for anyone who's experienced or dealt with trauma. It's going to be a look at where you've been, where you're headed, but more importantly, where are you right now? I'm inviting you along to join me and my guests on this journey, where we'll be navigating, managing, and living life with PTSD. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Emily. I would like to welcome Dr. Julie Galthorpe to the podcast today. I came across you on social media and on social media, you have top three tips for improving your relationship, top three tips for what you can do to feel better about yourself. So I decided to go in further. You have your own practice. That is correct, right here in Belleville. Okay, so why don't you tell me about yourself and your practice?
1: Well, as it we offer a generalized practice. So there's myself and a group of clinicians, and we provide service to people of all ages with different presenting issues. When it comes to PTSD specifically, our clients include active and retired military members, police, emergency responders, and people, of course, who have had complex trauma histories as well, and including those with residential school history and intergenerational trauma.
0: Being in Belleville, you're the center of a hub for a lot of first responders and military. You've got municipal, you've got the police service. Provincially, you've got the OPP detachments all around. To the east, you've got RMC in Kingston, and to the west, you've got CFB Trenton. So when you have people walking in through the door, You were saying like military, first responders, a lot of PTSD, would you say comes from that
1: community? I would. Yes, I would say certainly from uh, the Canadian Forces Base as well as all of those groups you mentioned.
0: One of the reasons why I wanted to come and speak with you is that you seem to tackle a lot of the hard topics that I would say that people struggle with bringing up in their own homes. For example, marriage. And I wanted to specifically speak about marriage and PTSD, but then I wanted to go a little bit broader. What I mean by that is you don't have to be married to have your relationship suffer for someone with PTSD in that relationship. If there's somebody who's just starting to date, cohabitating, if they're engaged, same-sex couples. I wanted to be inclusive with anybody who is in an intimate relationship with somebody who is struggling with or diagnosed with PTSD. When it comes to relationships and PTSD, What are the top issues would you say that people are presenting in their relationships?
1: So to understand PTSD, you have to understand it as an anxiety-based disorder, right? So with anxiety comes low tolerance, and then you get avoidance strategies in there. All of those avoidance strategies, whether that can be substance use, it can be gambling, it's withdrawal of intimacy, all of these avoidance strategies are risk factors to relationships couple and otherwise. Okay. So under those things, we will see addiction issues affecting couples. We will see infidelity affecting couples. We will also see just depression and unresolved mental health issues that are so heightened that there's not a lot of room for both people in that relationship in terms of emotional needs.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Whenever I was on the road to recovery, I wanted myself so much and missed myself so much that I didn't want to put effort into a marriage or a relationship. I just wanted to put it into myself. When it comes to intimacy, what happens? That person who is struggling with PTSD, they have a PTSI, what are they going through? Are they able to be
1: intimate? So there's a number of factors that come into intimacy, right? But when we look at post-traumatic stress in particular, keep in mind that intimacy requires approaching, which is the opposite of avoiding right? So until you heal and there's treatment in place to support you in approaching things in a way that you can tolerate the discomfort, intimacy is going to be extremely challenging. So this can leave the person who perhaps doesn't have post-traumatic stress or who is just craving that old relationship they had with their partner, it leaves them feeling incredibly disconnected, hurt, Sad, feeling like that somehow they are also responsible for what's occurring in this dynamic. And then you have the person who is struggling to heal and recover from the trauma, which again can be cumulative. It's not just one thing most Mm. often, it's several things over the course of a lifetime, and then perhaps one thing. Created a tipping point where all those boxes of compartmentalization just got kicked off the shelf. Right. But for the family member or the partner, it's like all those boxes came down on them at once. And they are then struggling to also find the person that they were drawn to. And I hear this often because I also see many partners and individuals who are coping with a spouse who has post traumatic stress and their feelings then also lend to this dynamic. So intimacy, and then we throw in, you know, pharmacological issues as well intimacy can be very challenging with that being intimacy
0: then what about when one or the other steps out of the marriage so you have the person who maybe is lonely and lacking and wanting that intimacy and they're not getting it from their partner and someone who's struggling with PTSD it isn't a daily weekly or even a monthly time frame it can be years so what happens when that person steps out and or if the person who has
1: the PTSD is choosing to step outside. So we've got individual issues wrapped up in a dynamic issue. That's what you're talking about, yeah. right, Emily? Okay. So when this is occurring, this need for emotional closeness is different for those two people. They're both feeling something different in that moment. And intimacy itself requires that it requires that you approach that, which is why coming at things emotionally focused is helpful because it's about feelings not just scenarios right mm-hmm. so if you're if you're dealing with well you did this and and you did this or you know i did this and then this was your response to this you're missing the whole point around well actually those are just those are just outside factors what we need to heal here is the dynamic and what's happening what's been broken what's been cracked post traumatic stress like many mental health disorders are incredibly powerful And that's why we need to decrease the blame on people when infidelity happens. And it's not about accountability or responsibility, but we need to put context in terms of what has happened. So if one person steps outside of the marriage and is seeking emotional closeness with someone else or they are avoiding emotional closeness, so they're, again, seeking validation is often what's happening when they, when people go outside of the relationship. Okay. There needs to be an understanding of what factors are contributing to this. So compassion towards the other person in a time when that is incredibly challenging is something that has to be put on the table so that there can be understanding. Again, it's not about it's okay that you have an affair. It's about understanding there are a number of factors that led to that outcome just like other avoidance strategies. So an approach would be we heal the marriage as a couple in that dynamic. The risk is we add someone else into that, which is an avoidance strategy so that you can seek relief from the discomfort that you're feeling around this need to have emotional closeness, which in that moment you don't feel capable of.
0: No, you don't in any way. What about when there's two members from a first responding community who are in a relationship together? Doesn't that throw in a whole other dynamic?
1: Certainly. (laughs) Certainly. Because when we see, I'll use an example of military members, for example, one person is suffering from post-traumatic stress. Often the person who's grounding them, who's doing all the legwork, who's trying to make sure that they keep functioning to whatever level they can is the spouse. So in the case where both people... Are dysregulated and are struggling with anxiety, there's going to be very little room, or you create a trauma bond, right? Or you can create that, you know, well, we're going through this together, so therefore that's healthy. It's not, you know, it's not healthy to have your connection be trauma based, but it does happen. So then we just have to accept that that is the case. And what can we work with in terms of supportive factors? So does each of the people in that relationship, do they each have their own support person that's separate or have they become so enmeshed that one person's healing is contingent upon the other person? Or when one person heals, the other person pulls them back into a state that feels comfortable for them. Because remember, marriage and families in general are supposed to be the one place where we feel comfortable and safe. But if our anxiety is so high and we can't tolerate emotional closeness, then it's actually activating and it can feel overwhelming. Okay.
0: What happens when the person with PTSD goes and gets help? They recover. They're healthy. And the person who has been supporting them all that time hasn't changed. That they almost they almost want the person with PTSD
1: to remain ill. Yeah, so this is something that we see in the addiction world, right? So that's that codependency. I think that's where you're going with this. So the codependency where the relationship has become so based on this dysfunction that when one person gets well, it feels threatening to the other person. Yes, threatening, right? So and not just threatening for them for the role that they're in, but also for the overall dynamic. So then they end up feel they end up feeling unsafe, right, in terms of their own security. So this is. Why it is so important if you're in a relationship with someone who has post-traumatic stress that you get help for yourself so you understand what's happening. So you understand how it can affect you. Because if you are a, a spouse or a partner of someone who has post-traumatic stress, initially it's like, I'm there. I'm going to help this person get everything they need and I love them and I'm, and I'm going to, you know, help them get well. Then we move to, Hey, it's all about you all the time. And I'm kind of tired of that. And then it's the other person is getting well, but The person who was helping them along the way, their mental health has now suffered. And they might have had stuff from earlier on as well that's been activated, but they've never had time to give attention to. Okay. So then let's shift that around. And now you have the person who has
0: the diagnosis, the PTSD, and they aren't doing the work to get well. You know, five years in, they're still struggling. They're not doing what it takes, taking responsibility for the recovery. That person then who's been standing by them all this time, what if they're done?
1: I can't say I see that a lot, okay. but it is always important that safety is first, right? And I don't just mean physical safety, although that's a very real thing uh, when we we've we've seen, you know, incidents where this has happened around post-traumatic stress and you know inability to self-regulate. So for people who are partners in these relationships, safety is always first. And then we also have emotional safety as well and their own mental health and healing. So it can be many many years and i think you brought that up already emily mm-hmm. and sometimes people are doing a lot of work to get well and it's still years and years and years yes. right mm-hmm. so yes we see small gains like perhaps you know we see a decrease in suicidal ideation that right. might be a huge gain but for the spouse they're like yeah except that they're still not doing that 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 right right so that leaves the 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 spouse feeling quite disheartened about the whole situation where the person themselves may feel like, well, actually I am making progress. You know, maybe I've tried like several medications by now, all of which made me feel not well. I've been in therapy. As soon as I leave therapy, I don't feel well. So there's this up and down. And I often say to people like healing, that journey of healing is very challenging for both the individual and the spouse because what it requires the person to do is always trump The long-term breaking that loop, breaking that cycle over immediately alleviating the discomfort, right? So immediately alleviating the discomfort might be going back to old habits, right? right? Or it might be feeding that obsessive thought. So what you have to see is as a spouse, you have to see these small gains as big steps and realizing that it will feel volatile. It will feel like, are we ever going to get out of this? And that's why outside support is essential to help normalize what you're experiencing.
0: That question right there, how long is this going to take? That is a question that I've heard from friends that I have that are struggling. And the spouses are always saying, how long is this going to take? When will you be fixed? I've had that terminology placed upon me as well saying, I just want you fixed. I had responded, I'm not broken. I have struggles and I have anxiety and depression and PTSD, but it doesn't mean I'm broken. So you can't fix this. It's a part of who I am. Can I manage it? Can I improve? Yes, I can, but it's not, it's not about fixing somebody. Do you find that the men in relationships want to fix their spouse and it's harder for them to be patient with it?
1: It can be, but that's not limited to post-traumatic stress. Couple True. sessions, right? That's also you know culturally driven. That it's that you know if if someone is hurting, I fix it. That's the the approach. With post-traumatic stress, it's and not just post-traumatic stress. Like it's, it's many different disorders that people deal with, or mental health issues, or life circumstances, right? Right. But it's being able to understand that as I go forward things are going to heal and get better. But things have happened to me that have changed my lens on the world. Importantly, my body response to things in the world. So where in the past, perhaps before the traumatic episodes, I might have been able to go shopping in downtown Toronto with ease. After these incidents, I may at some point be able to go shopping downtown Toronto, but the experience won't be the same. And as a spouse you need to accept that. Otherwise, you will constantly be disappointed. Yes, It will always be that distance between expectation and reality, which is disappointment. Not only does the the person coping with the post-traumatic stress need to learn to stay in the moment, the here and now, but as too does the spouse or the partner.
0: Right. And the person with the post-traumatic stress, as they heal and they recover, the person that they were years prior no longer exists. There's a new version of them that has healed and has new coping strategies so like you were saying the person that the spouse is looking for to come back to I want that old person back I-, I don't believe they exist anymore it will lend itself to being disappointed often if you don't if you don't live in that moment or you don't accept the changes that have happened in the marriage I don't know if the marriage can survive at that rate
1: right if you're and and really that's like most marriages as we move forward unless you're say you meet You know, Emily, you said you met your partner when you were very young, right? So, you know, so if that, if if we didn't expect growth between then and now, then we're going to be sadly mistaken, right? right? So growth is very important. And because someone has had bad things happen to them or situations happen outside of their control and they've suffered trauma as a result... That's actually a normal response, right? It's normal response to this abnormal situation, which we talk about a lot when we talk about trauma. Family members and spouses need to look at the whole context of what's been experienced. And while what the experiences were not good, they were terrible, this resulted in trauma, the person themselves can still grow Mm -hmm. and is still lovable Mm -hmm. and has all these positive strengths that are there. But they are also struggling with seeing those at this time. So it's important that, you know, you be their supporter, their cheerleader, and that they get to a place where then they can do the same for you.
0: When it comes to resentment, do you find that there's a lot in the relationship? How do they deal with that then? If they're resentful of the person taking so long or not having their needs met, how would you suggest that they deal with their resentment within the home?
1: Well, resentment can run in both directions. I see it both from the person suffering from the post-traumatic stress, as well as the partner. I would say in terms of partners, It's very important to learn to articulate those feelings. So whether that's you write them down so you get them off the the treadmill that's running through your mind, Mm -hmm. Uh, you speak to someone that's close to you. It doesn't, a therapist is helpful, but it can also be peers. There are peer support groups which are helpful for family members, for spouses that are, that can be very helpful and normalize your experience. You have to turn up the self-care. And self-care is not just like putting on a candle and hopping in the bathtub. Self-care is regular exercise, watching what you eat, making sure that you interact socially with people yes. that are healthy for you. Yes. So you have to learn to focus on the aspects of the situation that are within your control so that your tolerance also stays good for some of the behaviors you're going to be dealing with. Okay. Prior to the trauma injuries and the person changed, they may have actually had a
0: functioning home the way that they divvied up chores. Over time, you see the person pulling away, isolating, dissociating. How does this affect the home now whenever someone can't get out of bed? This is a big change in the home.
1: Right. So that's where it starts out with disappointing to resentment, right? So if one person is really carrying the weight, which formerly was shared by both people, they also get tired and fatigued. So it's important that they recognize what's happening to them and that they do verbalize that to their partner. Even though their partner, you know, is not well, it is important that in a very positive way to say, you know, I need some help here. And I understand that you're not well. I understand that you're struggling. But we need to figure out something here to help us manage this day to day. So would you say bring in family members
0: to say who can watch the kids or read a house cleaner while mum or dad can't get out of bed those days?
1: Yeah, so you're increasing your supports, whatever are available to you. Now, I realize with certain military families or first responders or police who are moved about, there's not always those family members nearby to help support. That's a high risk for couples because it lends to isolation. It lends to, you know, they're just in it together without people around them to help. And I would say those are probably the couples that are at the biggest risk. Okay. So the more supports that are in place, the better the opportunities are to get help and heal and try to stabilize this dynamic. When I got my diagnosis and getting that diagnosis
0: takes you down another notch because you now have this belief about yourself that you are messed up, you are incapable of things. But when I got that, I made it a rule that nobody talked about it. I kept it hidden. So that happened for two years that I kept it hidden and silent to reach out and ask for somebody to participate in the home that just didn't exist. I find there's a lot of relationships that keep it secret and hidden. For me, it was the person with the PTSD that wanted it. But there's other times when it's the spouse who, I don't know, are they protecting their spouse? Are they embarrassed? And then they want to keep it secret as well. So there's so much secrecy surrounding the relationship and what's going on within it.
1: Yes. And I think that as we move through the years, that's becoming less because I often think secrets are just the result of lack of knowledge, lack of psychoeducation about what it is, about what mental health is. So as we begin to talk about things, like if we go back years and years, it was, say, people didn't talk about child abuse. People didn't talk about, you know, intimate partner violence. Mental health has reached a point now where people are willing to speak about it. Right. Now, the other piece that is lending to this, of course, is that many roles that people were in before the incidents that led to post-traumatic stress are roles that are all about, I'm driven, I'm solid, I can do this on my own, I'm team-based, I would never want to let my team down, I would never want to let my guys or my people down. Mm -hmm. So showing that vulnerability is what they're trying to protect when they don't tell people. Right. And the spouse may be participating in that uh, unwittingly, perhaps, but just saying, you know, well, he he or she doesn't want to know, so I am supporting them in that. That's not my story to tell. Fair enough. But that's where that conversation needs to happen. Well, who are the safe people that we both feel comfortable in telling so we can allow them to become part of our support system, podcasts like yours? Thank you you know, the posts that you make on Instagram, Mm -hmm. those are helpful to normalize what people are going through, just as we have a whole mental health feed that happens now to help people speak about what's happening to them. And I am very hopeful, actually, when I see, you know, younger people that they are so open about their mental health. My daughter talked about being at a party and everyone was talking about what therapists they had and who they saw and how helpful that was. So I think as we move through the next generation, we are going to see more willingness to talk about what's happening mental health-wise, what's happening in our workplaces, what's happening in our families. And that lends to healing. Secrets never work. They don't help. They actually prevent accessing care. And, you know, we don't need to wait till we're the sickest person in the room before we access care. Right. Well, and as long as you're keeping
0: the secrets, you're essentially enabling the illness to prolong. Would you agree with that?
1: I would because the longer that the brain or the habits whichever uh, whichever we're, we're talking about here when they the longer those stay in place the harder they are to shift and change. Okay. So that's why reaching out when you notice symptoms is so important. However, I will just kind of tag that with I have met with many people who over time did speak to people about not doing well. Other people did see that they were struggling. And they also participated in sweeping it away. Oh, you're fine, it's just a moment. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody feels this way rather than addressing it early on.
0: What about that partner that does not have a supportive spouse? What if you have somebody who is of the sort of, put a smile on your face. You don't need medication, go for a run. What if that is their mindset? So the person who is struggling is trying to put that smile but can't get out of bed and is crying in order to please their spouse does not go on medication, or they can't get up and run because their body has checked out on them. What happens then when you have no support in that home?
1: Well, those relationships would be at heightened risk. <laughs> <Okay>. I, <laughs> but, but I would say so. Right? Because uh, eventually, that other, the person who's not receiving help is going to be completely dysfunctional. And the person who has these unrealistic expectations of what healing looks like is going to be disappointed and resentful. So that is certainly not a good loop you want to get into. Mm -hmm. And again, I think the answer to that is psychoeducation, more information about what post-traumatic stress is, information about how do we help mental health? Because yes, I see lots of posts or memes and they'll say, go for a run, take a bath, give yourself time to get out with friends. I agree. That's all part of healing. It's the the action. It's, it's the action part of it. At the same time, it's recognizing if your post traumatic stress is untreated, it's like doing that with cement shoes. So that's not going to help you, right? It's going to make things more difficult. And so it's important that the action is part of the overall package of how do we approach post traumatic stress.
0: So in 2017, I knew I was slipping, I was changing, and it wasn't for the better. I sought help from a professional, but I sought help to end my marriage because I thought that that's what the problem was. That professional advised that, well, no, no, you actually have post-traumatic stress and the injury. So all of the issues that I had come forth with for the marriage were put to the wayside. And I took on the responsibility and the blame for all of the problems in the marriage Thinking that it was the post-traumatic stress that caused it all. I was also left with this unrealistic idea that once I healed and once I recovered, all the problems in the marriage would recover as well. Therefore, it's all me and on me. Now, for a person who wants to just get themselves well, feeling the weight and the blame of the issues in the marriage, that's an awful lot for someone to carry. It's like double duty, basically so many people feel that they are the cause of all the issues in the home because of their post-traumatic stress. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I would. And often I'll hear from people that say, well, like stop blaming my post-traumatic stress. That's what they will say to their partner when they're sitting here. And the partner often is not blaming the post-traumatic stress, but it's the context of understanding what's happening. Now, in terms of is the post-traumatic stress the cause of all the problems in the marriage? likely not but no. it might have been the tipping point it might have been the thing that escalated all those things that were manageable maybe not great but they were manageable before but with the post traumatic stress so if i take if i take an example of which is pretty typical so you have a couple prior to the onset of the symptoms this person was highly productive both people were productive or maybe one was the sole supporter And the other person was managing things in the home and the children. And that all changes when the symptoms heighten and perhaps the person medically releases or they go off work for a period of time. And then this couple is home together. That also places stress on the dynamic. Well, the issue that led there was the post-traumatic stress. So we never want to forget that something happened to this person that was completely outside of their control. And the complete control of the couple. So that is a factor, right? Mm -hmm. And it's important that institutions keep that in mind too. Right. But once that's been identified, we have to, again, stay in the here and now and look at the dynamic and what's happening there. Because in a dynamic, there are two people and it's important that both people are able to be self-aware, insightful about what they are bringing to that dynamic while also learning to stay within themselves, stay within their skin when conflict happens. Okay. Right? So both people require a new way of coming at things post Trauma, right? Oh, right. But if there were problems, and often this is the case, there were problems prior to the trauma too. Yes. So were, uh, communication issues, intimacy issues. There could have even been infidelity prior to that. Right. So those things they don't just go away, and they're not the they're, they're not the fault of one person. It's it's like if someone has an affair. Yes, that person is responsible for that action. But to heal and go forth together and have a sustainable happy marriage, both people have to be highly invested on working on that dynamic. Okay. I'm curious, do you actually have any percentages or rates on marriage
0: successes or divorce with one who has suffered with post-traumatic stress?
1: I do. You know, this is U.S. research, but studies have shown that nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce and that they are three times, and this is where, so yes, that 50% is pretty typical, okay? Okay. But they are three times as more likely to have multiple marriages end in divorce if there's a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress.
0: Okay. So half of all marriages in the U.S., if someone has post-traumatic stress issues or disorder, that marriage, 50% likelihood of ending. That's correct, yes. Wow, that's a chunk.
1: It is a chunk. And then to have multiple marriages Marriages. end, that also is quite significant.
0: So with that said, two questions. When do you absolutely call it a day on your marriage? When do you know? What are the tipping points that are like, there's no support? Is there anything that you would say to somebody that says, this is when you go?
1: I don't give advice on when to go unless it's unsafe. (laughs) If it's completely unsafe, then we would have to look at that. Okay. You know, I often think in terms of marriages or just relationships in general, if nothing changes, nothing changes.
0: That is beautiful.
1: So if nothing changes and your spouse who has post-traumatic stress is, you know, if if they are working on things and they're doing their best to heal or... Flip side, yes. if your spouse and you have post-traumatic stress, if they are doing their best to support you and they want to be there for you and they are doing their best to heal, then that's something that you can continue to be hopeful about. Okay. But people who just go on hopefulness alone, those are the people that stay stuck. So there has to be something happening and in order for healing to happen. it right. doesn't. This isn't something that you just wait it out and it goes away. No. I, if it did, we'd all be healed,
0: wouldn't we? Yes. Okay. Now... What are your top tips, points for saving that marriage, for having a lasting marriage when
1: someone in the marriage has PTSD, PTSI? Initially, I would say get yourself some good education about what it is. Okay. Okay. Because making assumptions, you know, we're not all therapists, we're not all soldiers, we're not all police officers, we're not all first responders. We have to understand what is happening so that we can then focus on the aspects of it that are within our control. So that's the first thing would be to get some support in some way so that you can understand it. Just in concrete terms, perhaps that would be if you're a military spouse, you would go to your MFRC and perhaps they would be able to provide you some information. The second thing is you want to minimize the risk of isolation and avoidance, which is what we already touched on earlier, right? So realizing that Because post-traumatic stress is anxiety-driven, there is going to be a tendency to avoid. So the more avoidance strategies that get in place and take hold, so if you've got someone who's gambling, the longer that stays in place, obviously the harder that's going to be on the marriage because of the financial piece. Mm -hmm. If you've got someone that is using alcohol, the harder that's going to be on the marriage. So those things need to be addressed. And then it also, if we add infidelity into that, well, that's a whole other risk factor. And even just on that, when we we're talking about stats, 50 to 60% of people with post-traumatic stress who are seeking couple counseling are doing so because of issues of infidelity. Again, US stat. Yeah. But it's it's something that I would say is pretty reflective even here in our practice. Okay. So you want to address those symptoms as soon as possible so that the person can get a hold of those avoidance strategies. And you want to maintain good communication. And this is very hard because when someone is going through treatment and trying to get grounded and sort themselves out to a point where they're stable, there is a tendency to shut other people out, right? Absolutely. This is my thing. I'm doing it. I don't have to tell you what I talked to my therapist about. I don't have to tell you what I'm doing today. This is about me. Yeah. And it is. Fair enough. However, if we're looking at it from a couple perspective, it's so important to be emotionally focused. You don't have to tell them what you spoke to your therapist about, but you can say something along the lines of, yeah, I had a good session. I was able to deal with some emotion, right? So don't shut your spouse out, even though that might be your first response, because you may still be in that mode where you think you're protecting them. You're protecting them from information that they might find upsetting. You're going to protect them from things they, quote unquote, wouldn't understand. Right. But- what they are making assumptions about or connecting the dots with is probably far worse than the reality of that situation. Okay. That's a great point. My spouse is not a first responder. So why would
0: I why would I ever wish to why would I wish to share certain items of my illness with them? Because I don't feel that they could handle it. So that struggles with that communication point, right? we're, We're not, you don't communicate.
1: Right. And I think that's important, Emily, that you don't need to go through the incidents of what you've been exposed to with your spouse. Right. You know, you can tell them, you know, I've been exposed to some traumatic events. Sometimes, depending on the relationship, people will share those events with their spouse. Other times they will say it was during this deployment that I experienced some things, or it was, you know, when I was posted here that I experienced these things. The issue is that you are keeping them in the loop, that you are healing and you're working on things, but also that they have reasonable expectations of what that's going to look like. This is not like a skinned knee where it's going to heal over. And there will be moments where you're going to learn strategies where you can do things better. Strategies are highly important, But until you deal with the deeper stuff, it's like putting a Band-Aid over a gaping wound. So you have to deal with that deeper stuff, which the spouse may see increased dysregulation during that time. So you want to let them know, you know, what's happening for you. I've dealt with some difficult things over the last couple of sessions. I'm feeling a little unsettled. I just want you to know that. Okay. So now you've got a spouse. They're
0: feeling better with their PTS, their post-traumatic stress, and they start doing things again. They start going out and say they're going to go to a spin class or they're going to just be hanging out with their friends. And it's important for them because say they've been in bed for the last few years and now they're like, I've wasted so many years of my life, I wanna get out there and start living. But the person who's been supportive, they see their partner of putting something else now ahead of them. They're going, waited for you. And now instead of putting me first or including me, you're going out and doing other things and placing them in front of us.
1: What would you say with that? Well, I would start by saying I don't think they're jealous. Okay. all that might be what you're seeing. Okay. I think that they're likely hurt. They're feeling not valued. They maybe feel not worthy of your attention now that you feel better. And they might feel just that you're not focusing the energy on them and they did that for you. So it's a lot of hurt that, again, I don't feel valuable. Okay. So- That's where we need to turn up the compassion, right? And we do that by communicating with one another. So it may be, you know, I'm really hurt that you're going out tonight and I have been here for you for the last, you know, three years and now you feel like you want to go out with your friends and you don't even invite me. That's where the response needs to just say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. It needs to change to say... I understand that it's hurtful. Like I this was not my intent. My intent is to try to increase my socialization, you know, expose myself to things that would have made me uncomfortable in the past. Mm-hmm. And so that I can be healthier in our relationship. I don't want this to be all on you. I want to take care of myself.
0: Now, if there's one thing that I have missed that you would strongly suggest or wish people to know within a relationship with post-traumatic stress.
1: I think just overall, just remember that like all mental health, but particularly post-traumatic stress, it can take up a lot of room in a relationship. So the spouse can feel pretty squeezed out and burned out and exhausted by what the person is going through. Please remember that that person is going through things that you cannot even fathom. They might be experiencing Flashbacks, they might be experiencing body response to things that feel completely overwhelming for them. What looks like something that should be enjoyable, given how you interacted in the past, could be incredibly activating for them. Right. And when you see the behaviors and you're you you're worried, you can express your concern understand that they are not doing it purposefully to bother you or upset you or send a message to you. They are trying to regulate and it's extremely challenging. So it takes up a lot of room. Understanding compassion on both sides is important. And we often do need someone to help us with that. Peers, lots of great peer supports out there, professionals, therapists, people who can support you to heal and accept your life, this radical acceptance of what life is here and now, but also in the here and now that there can be a lot of joy. Absolutely. Now about yourself, you have a fantastic social media following. Sure. So yes. So with my assistant Alicia, we put out social media that is on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Okay. And it's at Galthorpe Therapists, which is at G-O-W-T-H-O-R-P-E-T-H-E-R-A-P-I-S-T-S. That's a handle. It is. <laughs> awesome. And I do follow that myself. And every Wednesday, you are on a radio show, a local radio show in Belleville. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I do Mixed Mornings with Sean and Orlena. It's a Mix 97. And we talk about family issues, mental health, things that come to us from people in the community. And we try to support people who maybe don't go to therapy, but on a broad level, they could really benefit from support. And now you are also an author of a book. Yeah, I wrote a book a number of years ago, but it's about coming through divorce. It's called Tainted Love. And it's about coming through a divorce and parenting arrangement where you can still swim with the stream and not feel like everything around you has taken you down and you can focus on your children. Okay, that's great.
0: At the end of every episode, I like to do a little Fast and Furious.
1: You know what? I screw this up every time
0: because I say it's one word or a little short sentence, and I never do a short sentence. That I'm a woman? I have no idea. So whatever it takes for you to answer, please just go ahead. As therapists, it might be more
1: than one word. That's
0: okay, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so are you from Belleville originally?
1: Yes. Really? Yes.
0: Okay. I thought you were from somewhere else. So then when you went to Carleton University, what made you choose Ottawa to go to university?
1: I entered Carleton in journalism. I have a love for you. (laughs) (laughs) So that is why I went to Carleton for journalism. Okay. So you ended up at McGill? I did. I went to McGill for my master's in social work. Okay. And then on to University of Toronto for the PhD.
0: Now I have to ask, why would you leave journalism for social work?
1: I think because I mistook at the time being 17 what I was going to do as a journalist. So I think I, I just thought, oh, I think I'll be a news anchor. And then you get there and you're like, okay, so this is a lot different than what I thought it was going to be. I loved writing, but I'll actually remember the one paper I wrote, They we didn't have Google search, right? So the one topic on our final paper, they said, pick anything. So I picked the Vietnam War. Do you know how long oh. of a paper that would be? Oh, yes. And no one said to me, perhaps narrow that. Yeah. So it was overwhelming. And I thought, I do not want to really do this. So yes. Yeah, so then I shifted over to criminology. and law. Awesome. Uh, And what do you do for self-care? I exercise every day. So I get up and I walk 5K and then I do a workout and I get together with my family, spend time just with friends and just making sure that trying to live in as healthy way as possible. So at the end of the day, my routine is pretty set. And do you find that routine is what helps keep you straight and narrow, mental health, keeping healthy is that you have a routine. I think a routine is essential for mental health, not just for me, but it's the thing that we don't have to kind of question every day. If we know what our routine is, and I don't mean that it has to be inflexible, but if we know what our routine is, then we have something always to rely on, and it's not something you have to make up or question every day.
0: Okay, so question number six, if you have a routine – are there those days that you don't want to get out and do that walk or that exercise? What do you do to push through?
1: I just know that I trust the routine. I trust the process. So That's a have, social worker in me. So you yeah. have discipline then. I discipline. I do. To I do. do it. Yeah. I just trust that at the end of it, I will be happy I did it and I will feel better and it clears my mind. It's good for me. It's good for the people around me. Not wanting to do something is not a reason to not do it. Okay. I just use double negatives in there. But what we want is a good outcome. So it's feeling good even if it's something you don't want to do. Okay. As a therapist, what is your bad habit? My bad habit is probably overthinking. I'm looking at my assistant, Alicia, right now. <laughs> overthinking and sometimes changing my mind on things. So I'll hand things over to people and then I will say, no, never mind, I'll, I'll just take care of that. So do you have a hyper-independence then? No, I wouldn't say so. It's just I first of all, I don't ever want to burden people with things. So I take it back and I'll say, no, I'll take care of that. You got lots to do. I've got lots to do too, but you know, we will do, uh, I try to keep and be mindful of what other people have on their plate as well as, yeah, I do like to, to know how things are going to unfold and I trust my group and I trust that they all do a good job. And so as I know people, it gets a lot easier for me just to hand things off to them. Okay. There's something decadent or indulgent for you. What would it be?
0: That's a hard one, Emily. Yeah, because you you seem to be very focused on your good food <laughs> and your health, but there's got to be something that you allow yourself that you're like, mm, this is a treat.
1: Oh, yeah. I allow myself treats like every day. Okay. <laughs> so- okay. So then what's your every... Hey, we're doing a two-parter here. What is your everyday treat? An everyday treat would I be, I would probably watch an episode of something that like is completely downtime. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So probably watching a Netflix or prime or something like that, an episode of something. And then also I like to just, you know, I like to get out in the sun. So probably I have way too much sun.
0: Okay. Yeah. But outdoors. Why is finding something decadent or indulgent hard?
1: I don't think it's hard. I think that I just like lots of different things. So it's not, it doesn't have to be the same thing for me every time. I like to, you know, I like to go shopping some days and other days I could leave it. I like Starbucks some days. Sometimes I don't want it. So it just depends on, I really do decide what's my thing that day. So for me to just kind of label what's decadent for me, one day it might be chocolate. The next day it might be special coffee. Whatever hits your Whatever hits me at that moment. Okay,
0: perfect. Now, what is something that you're reading right now?
1: Right now, I am reading a book by Annie Ward, and she's a Canadian author, mm-hmm. and it is a book called The Lion Club. Before that, I read her book before that, which was called Beautiful Bad. So okay. those, that's my... There's, there's a couple books that I've read that I thought were good. And okay. I also read one recently called The Therapist, which was great. <laughs>
0: okay. Was it fiction or
1: nonfiction? It's fiction. It was B.A. Paris who uh, wrote that one. Okay.
0: As a therapist... Do you have a favorite self-help guru out there, like Brene Brown or Mel Robbins or anything like that?
1: I don't. Really? I don't. I would read – I love The Body Keeps the Score. If I could recommend one book to people with post-traumatic stress, it would be that book. I guess I would watch all of Bessel's stuff. Okay. If he when he puts out videos, but that would probably be it. And I wouldn't say he's a self-help guru really. No. No. So that would be who I would say that if I was to watch someone frequently, it would be him.
0: Okay. Well, I cannot thank you enough for having me here today. And I have to say, I love this view that I've been watching the water the entire time. But well, I'm looking at you too, of course, because <laughs> I would have been pretty ignorant. But anyway, thank you so much for having me. And I absolutely look forward to meeting up with you again in the future. Me as well. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.